Nothing on the Bonnell Foundation's Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast should be considered medical advice. Medical advice can only come from your CF physician. Cystic fibrosis can be a devastating diagnosis, but living with the disease can bring positivity and a new appreciation for each day. From the Bonnell Foundation in Detroit, Michigan, it's the Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast, sponsored by Beatrice, Genentech, and Vertex. Here's your host, Laura Bonnell. This podcast contains details about war, stress, and anxiety. We wanted to make you aware of this in case this is triggering to you. The attack by Hamas, the terrorists on the Israelis, is horrific. The 9 million people there are shattered, they're frightened, and yet resilient despite the atrocity that occurred on October 7th. It's horrific to be targeted simply because you're Jewish, but on top of that, you have a chronic illness and need to continue treatments. Nerit Mazels and her husband, Aviad, are raising three children. They have a 14-year-old daughter and two boys, 11, and one that's almost eight. Nerit and her family live 10 minutes from Tel Aviv. They are in Ramat Hasharan. She is now 43 years old, and she was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis when she was three months. I just want to tell you a little bit about her before we get into what it's like to not only live day-to-day in a war zone, but when you have a rare disease like cystic fibrosis. Nareed has a Bachelor in International Relations and Asian Studies, and she also got her MBA And she stayed at home to care for her kids and to keep herself healthy. Nareet was just about to go back to school for a three-year program when the war started. And also, just a couple other things I wanted you to know, that when she was 18 years old, she was a volunteer in the Israeli army. Her family is terrified, as you can imagine, And they have been through this before, which is heartbreaking. Her grandparents survived the Holocaust. But I'm going to tell you, when you hear everything she has to say, you will be inspired by her resilience and by the way that she is getting through this. We're going to do another podcast with her because she had so many things to say, and it's just really important to hear from her about the war and to hear from her about how she is living with cystic fibrosis in a war zone. Nareet, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast to talk during such a horrible time. You're joining us from Israel. The war is obviously going on still. Tell us what it was like on October 7th. What happened? You're 10 minutes from Tel Aviv. Describe your day for us. Hi, Laura. Thank you for having me. So we woke up to sirens at 6.30 in the morning. It was a big shock because it's been quiet here for quite some time. Um, My kids, unfortunately already know what to do when they hear sirens. So we all just jumped out of bed and ran into the safe room. We fortunately have one in our house, but some people, they need to go to the shelter downstairs or it depends uh, on the how old your building is. Um, but we all ran to the safe room and uh, we had to wait until we hear some bombs, unfortunately, with the line or the iron, iron dome. 
stopping it. We have to wait for 10 minutes. And then we got out straight away. We opened the news to see what's going on because it wasn't anything expected. But the truth is at that time, I felt maybe it's a mistake or, you know, we just didn't know what to expect. So after we come down, we just went back to sleep for a little bit. And I think I woke up maybe one or two hours later and turned on the news again just to see what happened. And then we started realizing that something is going on and it seemed to be worse than usual, but we still didn't know what to expect. We just thought it's okay. Once every few years, unfortunately, we have um, missiles shot from Gaza to Israel, and we just didn't know that it's going to be anything of that magnitude. And how scary it must be and how sad that it's so normal for your kids. It's great that they know exactly what to do. But still, does that upset you that this is such a normal situation? I think that you can never get used to it, really. And I think as a mother, it breaks my heart every time that anything like that happens. And I try to, I try to tell my my children, you know, that and this is our country and, and we are strong and we're resilient and we're doing whatever we can to protect our country from these things. And, and I give them security by telling them, you know, about the Iron Dome, you know, the, the whole system that we have here to protect us from the missiles. But I cannot deny that the truth is that it breaks my heart every time I have been experiencing it with my kids when they were babies. It doesn't get any easier. And sometimes it even gets harder because now they understand much more. I can say whatever I want, but we, we don't let them watch the news or anything, but they come up with questions that, you know, leave me with my mouth open. And I realize they understand much more than we ever tell them. And of course, this is so different. This is war. This is something they've not experienced. It is different. What is the family situation? How has it changed since the war began for you? I think um, I call it survivor mode. We just don't turn on the TV at all. Only, you know, Netflix or something that they enjoy. But we do not watch the news with them. We told them not to open any, some of the the older ones have phones. They cannot open any videos sent to them, you know, through WhatsApp or anything like that. We explain, you do not want to see these things. They know, I'm very honest with them. They know what's going on. Even the youngest one was almost eight. They know that there is a war and they know things are happening and we are protecting them. We do whatever we need. And um, But I tell them for their own good to just listen and not to watch what they don't need to watch. But we still have to explain the situation. I encourage them to ask the questions because I rather they get the right information and to tell me if they're scared. And, you know, the, it's, it's a difficult situation. It's, uh, I don't wish it on any mother to, have, to explain this to their children. And it's very difficult. It's difficult to just keep your kids off social media, right? And then to keep them off this with some natural curiosity about and fear about what's going on. I think we try to give them the proper information that is age appropriate uh, for them. And we do explain, we do show them, you know, videos that are appropriate for them. 
And I think it's not even hard because they are scared themselves. They don't want to watch these videos. They are more afraid than us. You know, I tell them not to, to they, they just come around to me, mom, I got a video. I don't want to open it. Is it something I can watch? It's grandma sent me something. They, they're afraid themselves. They know that this is a way to protect them. I think that um, when you are in a situation like this, kids have the sense to cooperate with you. Like there's no arguments when I say, okay, we are going to the shelter. Even sometimes we don't hear the, the sirens. Sometimes we hear the bombs from far away. And I think maybe the sirens don't work well. I say, okay, everybody leave everything, go to the safe room. They just go. There are no arguments, no questions. We can discuss it later. But I think they are also in a, in a very, no matter how young they are, I have stories that my children had experienced things like that at the age of two. And they just went to the room with no questions asked. It's crazy. But I think when you grow up and you, you see, kids know when you have to cooperate and to do what mommy tells you. And it's so scary and unbelievable for those of us, millions of us in the U.S. who've never experienced anything like this. I mean, you're being targeted for your religion and it's terrifying that you and your kids are going through this. How are you doing? What do you do to try and keep sane throughout all of this? I have to say it's very, it's very difficult. It's very difficult and... Um, I don't really have it in her. So I think we are all in shock now in Israel. It, it really is something I never imagined could happen here. These stories that are coming to us, they seem like Holocaust stories. Like, I don't even want to shock your audience. I don't know what I can say or not. But the pictures and families being, all the family being killed and murdered and babies decapitated, it, it's just something that, I've never heard before in this area. I've never seen such cruelty. I don't know how to keep saying I'm trying my best because I have no choice. I think having a family is making me sane because I have to be for them. I cannot let myself go. When they go to sleep, I can go to cry at home, at, at bed, but I will do my best not to let them see me like that. And I do try to be strong even seeing these things. I, I have no choice. You can say anything. I think there is no reason and it would be complicit for us, right, if we didn't speak the truth. And hearing the truth from you is really important for so many of us, obviously, that are not even there. I mean, the truth is really important. Everyone needs to learn from it and, un and understand. Did you lose family and friends? And if you did, what are the stories that you have heard? Um, I don't think there is anyone in Israel that this didn't touch. Like we have so many people around us losing loved ones. We have just a neighbor here who is a single mom uh, who was at the party and she was murdered and left three sons just here a few blocks away. Three boys just left in this world alone. Um, of course, the whole neighborhood and everyone around, I think, are trying to help. But this is just unbelievable. Um, we have colleagues and people from the kids' school that, you know, they lost their uncle or their sister or their any. It's just, it's 
crazy stories around us that I cannot, I don't think there is anyone here in Israel that this doesn't personally touch their lives. You know, it's very small. And so many people are kidnapped and murdered. 1,400 are murdered and around 200 were kidnapped, including babies and infants and grandmothers and and men and women and, and children. It's just something that I cannot even tell you. The, the pictures though, and, and the people that I know, like a friend of mine, her best friend is kidnapped. And, and it's just something that um, I have no words. And how could you have any words? It's so traumatic and so unbelievable. And you have the trauma of it repeating every single day because you're seeing all these people who have lost people and your neighbor, was at a party or was it at the concert? A concert. I said a party, but it was a concert. It was um, like a music uh, peace festival. Yeah. Wow. It is so tragic. And I don't, I don't know how you get by day by day. In addition to that trauma of knowing your friends and neighbors who are missing or murdered, there must be so much panic every time a siren goes off. Every time something happens like that. Of course, it's scary. But I really feel like, as I said before, it's survival mode. I have no feelings when it happens. I just call my kids down, tell them, let's go. We live in really close to Tel Aviv. So it's about, we have one and a half minutes to get to the shelter. So for us, it's quite some time. You know, I even showed my kids, you know, that, they don't need to run because some of the, you know, they can fall. You can, it's, it's not even being hit by the missile that you can hurt yourself. Just by the panicking and running. And, you know, I have to take them somewhere and we're in the car. Every time I go in the car with them and I try not to drive too far, maybe, you know, a few minutes to the grocery store or something, but I don't want to leave them alone. So I take them with me and I say, if we're in the car and the sirens go on, you know what we're going to do? We're going to stop the car, slowly get out. We're going to find some kind of a wall or somewhere close to, to a building or something. That's the instruction. And we're going to lie on the floor and put our hands on our heads. And we're going to wait for a few minutes and then we're going to go back to the car and we'll continue. And actually, we've had experience that also in the past. They were with me in the car and the siren went on and we had to leave the car. And you also have to do that carefully because... Somebody else might drive very fast and get, you know, nervous and start driving. You have to make sure that you tell them everything. You, just, you don't run out of the car. You have to wait for me to stop. You have to wait for me to take you out. We're going to do it safely. And this is just something that I keep telling them, you know, we're not going to get upset if this happens outside of the house. It's something that can happen. I prefer preparing them for that so they will not panic. So we try to control the situation as good as possible. How do your kids and others' kids get along and play during all of this? I mean, do they talk about it? Do you have times where you're just with other parents and neighbors where you're able to sit around and talk about how scared you are or precautions you need to take or exchange information? Um, I think the first few days, we just wouldn't leave the house at all. Nothing. Um, I didn't let my children even outside of the door. There was nothing. Slowly, we understood that we need to 
continue to live somehow during this time. But we are very calculated. We try to, for example, I try to invite maybe their friends to our house. But, you know, so maybe it's like neighbors that come in and they know that we have a safe room so they can come here. We, but we try to be somewhere very, very close to a safe room. There is no going to the playground. Uh, there's no, you know, going to anywhere that is not safe. In the last two days, they started letting the children go to school. But um, it's only one or two classes and two grades. They, they don't let everyone go back to school. They have a schedule, so they need their shelter to be able to contain all the children. So they're not even in the classroom. They're all near the shelter in the school, just so they can meet and have some kind of uh, interaction with each other. So I think it's very important for the children, but I have to think it's scary. It's scary to say, and we have some patrols like all over, like near them. It's unbelievable. We're, we're trying to let them meet and do what they need to just continue living as children, but uh, the operation around it is, is very complicated. Absolutely. And it's only because I live in a green zone. You have to understand, I live where it's supposed to be safe. And even though we have sirens and whistles and everything, this is considered more safe than other areas that are, they cannot go anywhere. It really depends on where you're from in Israel. So I'm just telling about Ramat Sharon, which is now near Tel Aviv, and it's, it's different than in Ashkelon and the south of Israel, and now in the north of Israel, there's also people being evacuated from their houses, and the people who are still there are very restricted with what they can do. And is your husband going to work, or is he able to work from home? Like, how does that go? Are the grocery stores, do they still have food? About the grocery stores, I think, in, again, the first few days, it was like when COVID started. It's not that we don't have water in the grocery store or toilet paper, but everybody's so afraid that they're just stocking up. So it was a bit scary in the beginning and we did stock up like everybody else. I just, the first day it started, I started, you know, uh, making deliveries to the house with everything we need. And I, I have in my safe room, I have emergency escaping um, bags. I have food. I have uh, flashlights. I have everything here in case we need to escape. So the beginning was hard to understand exactly what's going on when we did whatever. And it still is. I think we still have it. And we're prepared for anything. How big is your safe house? Is it just to fit the five of you? In most homes, it's just one of the, of the rooms, the kids' rooms or any room. For us, it's the, where my husband works usually. It's just a room, but if the walls are thicker, much thicker, they're building it in a different standard. So we have, uh, you know, an iron door to it that is very strong, but it's just any room in the house. And that is where your husband is working from currently? Uh, no, actually, he, at the beginning, again, he didn't leave the house. Neither one of us did. But now, slowly, he has no choice. Uh, the problem is that the economy and the working place, and they have to continue working because we cannot stop the country for all this time. So he is working. Uh, he comes home earlier because I cannot even, again, I cannot go to the grocery store unless I take three kids with me. And it's impossible to do that every time that I need anything. 
So sometimes if I have some errands to do, if I have to go to the bank, if I have to do anything, he needs to come back home to be with them so I can go. And if there's a, a siren, they will not be home alone and panic. I would have so much anxiety every time I left the house. Even if you left them with your husband, do you have so much anxiety about being separated? You know, if there's a siren and you're separated or are you somehow used to it? I don't know. I would have so much anxiety. Of course, we we are all anxious and we have, you know, the family WhatsApp, the extended family WhatsApp. Every time there's sirens, everybody, you know, like soldiers, we're okay, we're okay, we're okay, we're okay, we're okay. And everybody relaxes that he and I didn't fall on any of our houses. But of course, especially when we're away from our immediate family, you, it, it's horrible. Like I, in, in some, some safe rooms, because it's so thick, the walls that you don't have um, Wi-Fi reception. Yeah. And then you get really upset and just make sure that everybody's okay. But you, you check the news, where did it fall? Where is, we're all, you know, starting to understand what's going on. I, I wouldn't say I'm anxious, like I'm, I'm trying to be as calm as possible. I, I feel there is no other option for me. Right. And that makes sense. I mean, you have to function, you have to live. I mean, it's terrifying, but that's your life right now. That's what you have to do. Is your family, are they all around living near you? Um, my parents live maybe... 40 minutes away, but they have many more sirens than we do. We're not living uh, in the same place, so it is difficult to keep track. And we have the app that tells us where the missiles fall so we, and where the sirens are. And we try to keep track of, of all the, the locations that we have family. And I would guess you're not visiting family as much as you did before because everyone's kind of sheltering in place. No, we're, we're trying not to drive for too long. And if it's 40 minutes, then it's a bit far for us right now. But they also, um, if they don't have shelter in their house, from ex- my parents don't have a, rest, a shelter like a room, a safe room, because their building is a little bit older. So they have to go into the hall of the building because it doesn't have windows. And still, the, the, it's, I don't know exactly how it goes, but they go to the hall and not to a safe room. And we prefer that the children, Right now, we will not get panic because they don't have uh, a room like that. So we don't drive to them. And a tough question here, you know, Hamas targeted and slaughtered Jews simply because their religion um, and the Palestinians, although not targeted solely for their religion, but as a consequence of what's happening in Israel, um, the loss of life and of people also in Palestine in Gaza is horrific as well. Are you able to empathize with all that they're going through as well? Of course I do. I think that every single innocent people's lives lost is horrible. I think that um, people need to understand that Hamas is not the Palestinians. That's not the same. The Hamas is terrorists. And they are using the Palestinian people as shields. What they're doing to the Palestinians is horrible. It's a complicated situation, but Israel is not in, in control of Gaza. The Hamas is. And we are just, um, we are supplying them with things we're trying to help. But the people who are actually taking what we're giving and what the fuel and the electricity and the water 
they're taking, you know, we've seen water pipes that are built in, uh, in Gaza. They're taking them out to build missiles. Instead of taking care of their people, of the Palestinians, they are actually doing the opposite. If anybody actually understands the situation, they know that Israel is helping and not trying to hurt any innocent Palestinians. And I think that we have to realize that this is something, for example, the Israeli army, before we respond to any of the attacks, we ask the Palestinian people to leave their area. We put flyers, we throw flyers from airplanes. We actually have people making phone calls to Gaza and telling them, please leave this area. You have a Hamas organization in this area that we, are, we need to stop. Please, if you do not belong to the Hamas, leave. Okay, and I am not saying it's a, it's a good situation. I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but if the Hamas decides on purpose to shoot missiles from civilian areas, we cannot stop them <laughs> any other way. We are trying to protect the civilian or the, uh, civilians and they're putting them as shield. So I don't know how we can protect ourselves in any other way. And I think it's beautifully said. And I think from mother to mother, from where you are in Israel to a mother who is going through the same thing as you are in Gaza, it's beautifully said that it's about the terrorists right? It's about what they're doing. So thank you for sharing that because I think it's really important to hear that. And I am not a Middle East expert and I wouldn't pretend to be, but these are just people. People are just being slaughtered and murdered. So thank you for sharing that thought. And I I want to say one more thing. Yes. It starts with education. Absolutely. We have to educate the Palestinians that they don't provide their uh, education are the Hamas. You know, they give them camps. They, you see the, those kids, you know, dressed as terrorists. And, and sometimes they're, they are put in the situation. No kid should be dressed as a Shahid, as someone who's going to kill anyone. So I think if they start to make sure that the Hamas is not the one providing the camps for the children and the education for them, and you start to educate and for pro-peace, then our lives and their lives are going to be different. But as long as the Hamas is controlling them, and as long as they're the ones who have, or they, they get money and, and they steal it from the Palestinians, the Hamas is stealing the money from the Palestinians. And it's just something I cannot understand. The children yeah. everywhere should not have to live like this. I agree. Absolutely. And... We're going to make a little transition because one of the whole reason for this podcast is talking to you about living in a war zone and having cystic fibrosis. You were diagnosed at three months old and kind of tell us about your CF journey, how your parents diagnosed you and how your CF journey started. Okay, so... um... I'm 43 years old, and uh, as you said, I was diagnosed when I was three months, thanks to my parents, who actually were insisting that something is wrong with me. I wasn't gaining weight, 
but that was pretty much all I had. And because I have an older brother, my mom noticed that something is wrong and she knew how babies are supposed to be. She went and she asked that the owl be checked and she went to professors who told her that she's crazy and that everything is okay with me and she's just being hysterical. Wow. And that happens so much to women. It's mind blowing. But yes, go on. But so grateful that she insisted. And I thank God the, to some intern who actually suggested to take a sweat test. And there was no doubt from there that what I had. And it was really, it was a lot of luck, or I don't know how to call it. But if she didn't insist and he, if he didn't suggest to do it, I don't know how that would have gone so far. I'm interested because it's Eastern European. I'm Ashkenazi Jewish. Are you Ashkenazi or Sephardic or? No, no, I'm Ashkenazi. Yeah, I was just curious. You know, it's very interesting how we're all connected and how cystic fibrosis traces back in families to different countries and and where we started. Do your mutations, um, my husband's Irish Catholic, our mutations allowed our daughters to go on a CF modulator. What about you and your mutation? Um, no, I have two identical stop mutations. So unfortunately, not yet. I cannot use them modulators. Well, they're working on it. A lot of people are working on it. Um, My fingers crossed. Right. Emily's entourage, Emily Kramer Golenkov, she's working on it. She is doing so much for the final 10% or whatever final amount that is. You know, it could be more. She's amazing. I'm I'm her number one fan. She She is amazing. Absolutely. I also wondered, how does war in Israel impact your ability to stay healthy and do your treatments and get your medications? Well, this is actually a very um, important topic, I think. I think that the CF community in Israel is, and like everyone in Israel, of course, is in a very chaotic situation right now. I believe the situation is making it, of course, so much more difficult for us because there are so many things that we need to keep doing and are very difficult. I'll give you just one of the examples. Physiotherapy in Israel is very different, I think, than it is in the States. We do not uh, normally use vets. We have uh, physiotherapists that come to our house and we do treatment together with um, a tree flow, I think, not a tree flow or uh, a cough assist or something of that sort. But we have the physiotherapists come to us every day. Um, because of the situation now, even yeah, if you were not evacuated from your house, even if you are like me in the center of Israel, many of the physiotherapists are recruited to the army. Some cannot leave their kids. We are all in a situation that all of a sudden, many of us don't even have physiotherapy on a regular basis. So we started thinking about getting vests, but we don't even have them in Israel, I think. No, nobody, we don't even know how to... Um, I understand it's very expensive. Like I've never tried to buy one, but I started asking the question and trying to find out. I realized it's very, very expensive. So we need, for example, the vest. In my uh, escape kit, I have, you know, Ensure and Lucerna, because I'm diabetic as well. We have, you know, even uh, 
we cannot go outside to do sports like we used to. If somebody's used to having walks, you know, something for exercise. So many people are asking for treadmills from the CF organization and for a portable nebulizers like uh, inhalator machine and high column. Even the, the medication, the supply chains are damaged now. The first day when it all started, I decided to fill my prescriptions and I called the pharmacy and I said, no, you cannot take, we usually can take for three months. And they said, no, everything stopped. We cannot give you uh, more than just a few things, you know, maybe one month, not even because some things are missing. It's just a very chaotic situation. Uh, me personally even tried to help one of the families that lived in the South. They evacuated from their house. They needed an alternative uh, housing. We have families that don't have uh, many computers, very some religious um, families that don't use computers on a regular basis, and they want to communicate with the doctors online, and they cannot. So we've, oh, been, I see. we've been asked for computers or any communication um, devices. Some of them don't even have smartphones. So many things that are coming up, we didn't even expect. We're still learning the situation. No, I was going to ask you about flutters. Or do you know what they are? Not a vest. It's just the very small. Yeah, I don't know if those would help. First of all, anything would help right now. I think we are just learning what we need and what we can do. But even the flutters, I think what we usually do is do it with the physiotherapist, at least to learn it. You need to start from somewhere. But we need all the devices we can think about. We are, you know, working as I, I volunteer at the CF Foundation in Israel. First of all, we're making phone calls to see what's going on with our community. Who needs help? What do they need? Some of them, of course, they turn to us and, and say what they need. But we also want to make sure that everybody's okay. We're trying to see how we can help. But the CF is an organization in Israel is not very rich to say um, lightly. We have no way of helping everyone right now. It's a big struggle. And how big is the population, the CF population in Israel? Um, we're about 650 CF patients. Very small. I mean, I know you're a small country as well, but it is a small population. And that's why it's also hard, I think, to raise funds because we do not have enough, you know, people usually contribute or, or donate right, money to things that are close to their hearts. They have friends and family and because it's such a, a small community here. I think it's difficult for us to raise the money. It's, it's small compared to, you know, of course, to other countries, but every single person here, the 650 are, everyone is a full world uh, who need that uh, system. Do you know, have you kind of figured out like what is the big need or how can Americans or anyone help? Um, I think what the CF Foundation in Israel right now is in most urgent need is money because we do have to be personal. It's not normal days that we can say, okay, we want to raise money for something specific. We are really learning the situation. We have, as I say, we're trying to buy vests. We wanted to contribute them to whoever needs them. We want to help with housing essentials to people who all of a sudden lost their house. If a CF person lost their house, they still need to find a way to eat and to have everything they need. It's not 
only CF, but it's just buying them, you know, the food, the medical food, I think you call it. And as I say, even oxygen, oxygen generators, portable ones, just in case that you have to run out of your house, just in case a missile hits a building next to you and you have to escape. We have to have the ability to help on the spot. It's not knowing in advance who needs what. Everything changes. And, and if somebody needs it now, it's good. And then they give it back to us and we can help somebody else. But the situation is just so changing so fast. It's not even over. We are just beginning. And I'm afraid to, that it will get worse because we are waiting for the army to actually decide what to do next. Right. And to go forth after Hamas. What are your biggest fears for you personally in regard to cystic fibrosis? I mean, in addition to medication, the error with everything that's going on must not be as good as it was before the war. Of course, I am very worried about my medication and my seeing my doctor. I, I've been feeling a little bit down that past two days, but I'm not going to go anywhere until I really have to. I'm going to try to do everything I can and do the treatments, whatever. But I have to say, even that is hard. I have three children in the house. And I have no babysitters. And even to take care of myself these days, I, I have to say, I haven't been eating. It's hard. It's hard to do everything you need to do and keep your children calm and safe and take care of, you know, all you need for the house to, to buy the food, to buy the, if they have family who need, it's just, I can't even explain how, how difficult it is to manipulate everything to to just to try to live a normal life and not to deteriorate my health because I know that if I don't take care of myself, I will not be able to take care of my family. And now it's hard. Yeah. And thanks for telling us because I don't think we can imagine it, right? We've not been in that position and it's just so overwhelming. To put it mildly and say the very least, if I'm correct, you were talking about evacuation kits. Is that something that's part of the solution? And can you explain what that is? Um, the CF Foundation is now trying to establish what are the things that the CF community will need in addition to what every citizen. I think um, many families have a bag near the door to just in case we need to do something. I, I hope that doesn't happen. But if we do just to take it with us and go wherever we need. And I think that we are trying to think exactly of what we can um, suggest for our community to have in addition in that bag. That means, for example, like I said, ensure inhalators, you know, portable like eFlow. If you, you are familiar with eFlow, it's mm -hmm. very small ones. We can actually charge it. And ensure, in case people don't know, that's a high-protein liquid that many people with CF take? Or is it different there? Is it powder? Protein, it's, no, it is a drink. Okay. But it's a... Uh, it's Calories? Medicated food. It's, it's supposed to be a full meal. Okay. So even communication devices to have uh, chargers for your machines, for whatever you need to take with you. It's so much to worry about, so much to think about. I mean, you're in fight or flight all the time, right? Yeah. But I have to say one thing. I want to give some optimism into this conversation uh, because the situation is difficult. But first of all, I believe that Israel is strong. And I know that people here are very willing to help each other. 
everybody's doing their best. And I think we're united against this terrorism. And we get a lot of support from outside, from the West. And, and of course, we see all the ones that don't support us. But I, I do try to look at the bright side. And I have to say one more thing. I see the resilience of Israel a little bit like CFers. If I look at the CF community, we've been through quite a lot. All of us, personal journeys, you know, being born with CF is, is not easy. And I think someone might say it makes us weak, but I think it makes us strong. I think once we overcome those problems that we encounter, once we realize that our time on earth is, is limited, like anybody, but we are, we are born into this situation that we know a little bit better. I think for me as being with CF, I think I'm more resilient sometimes than my friends. I think I'm stronger than them. And it doesn't mean I don't need help. I need help with a lot of things. And being with CF does teach you to ask for help sometimes. And I've been learning that because it, it wasn't easy for me to ask for help. I like to think of myself as a very strong person. But, you know, with, in my journey, I learned to ask for help. And I think it's the same in Israel now. We are in a difficult situation and we are suffering from a horrible, horrible attack, but we are resilient. And with the help of our friends, we'll get up and we'll reestablish our country, rebuild our souls and, and we'll be fine. And I think all the support that we get also from even having me on your podcast and, and listening to us and understanding what we need, it is so appreciated. And it is so supporting and, and helping us. And, and I'm very grateful for that. Well, I am so grateful for you. And I'm so sorry it has to be during this time. I hope this ends as soon as possible so all of you get some relief. But thank you for sharing your story. It's really important to tell. You're going through and doing so much as is your entire family. Thank you for sharing your story with us. You've said it so beautifully. And making that comparison to cystic fibrosis, I think uh, people with CF are so strong. I mean, I think you definitely stated that truth. We're all so connected and have the same. And I'm really, people with chronic illnesses, you just have a different life and you kind of get it, you know, and you're not worrying about the small stuff. You're dealing with big things. But yes, you know, it's just been an honor to meet you. And we will put the link. The link is on our website for the CF Foundation in Israel so people can donate. Thank you so much for having me and for listening. The CF population in Palestine, those CF children are very sick. Dr. Greg Shea, who works in California and works with the CF population in Gaza, is telling me this. He said they have no electricity for their nebulizers, limited food and water, and CF families can't get their enzymes. And like low-income countries, CF families have no palmazyme, Toby, or genetic modifiers because the government is so poor. So that's going on now. Um, we pray for all the people that are scared and harmed by this war. Since the war began, anti-Semitic incidents, according to the Anti-Defamation League in the United States, have increased 400% since the Hamas massacre. The ADL reports a 1,000% increase in daily and violent messaging. 
The original music in this podcast is performed by Kevin it's Allen, not complicated. who happens to have cystic we fibrosis. All got our worries and fears. I know what's got you frustrated. But loving you is so alright. This has been the Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast. For more information and to learn more about the Bonnell Foundation, visit our website at thebonnellfoundation.org. That's the B-O-N-N-E-L-L foundation.org. This podcast was sponsored by Beatrice, Genentech, and Vertex. It was produced by Jagged Detroit Podcasts. Follow our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now.